This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Perrier, a virologist at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. We'll be discussing the spillover of highly pathogenic avian influenza A, H5N1, into New England seals in the northeastern United States. Welcome, Dr. Perrier. Hi, it's great to be here. How is avian flu H5N1 different from other flu viruses? So first, it's probably worth starting off with a really brief rundown of influenza since it, it can definitely get a bit confusing. So there are a lot of different forms of influenza A virus, or what's often called avian flu, and it's defined by two proteins on the outer surface of the virus. There's hemagglutinin, or H, and neuraminidase, or N. And we know that there are 144 different combinations of H and N that can occur, of which H5N1 is one of them. So there are all of these combinations that can and have been found in what's considered the natural reservoir or wild birds. And this is primarily waterfowl, gulls, shorebirds. And in most cases, the virus stays in birds and causes little to no disease. But sometimes the virus can spill over into other types of birds or species. And in this case, H5N1 that we're talking about today, it made its way back into domestic poultry, actually way back in 1996. And it continued to evolve into a form that's very deadly to poultry. And that evolved and made its way actually back out to wild migratory birds. And over the past few years, it's really disseminated around the globe. And that's what we pick up on with this paper that we're going to discuss. So the thing that's particularly unique and concerning about this form of H5N1 is that it is causing a large amount of mortality in a diverse range of wild birds. And that's something we actually haven't seen previously. So it's making its way also into wild mammals and causing mortality there as well. When you say it makes its way into wild birds and mammals, mortality obviously is dying, but what other problems is it causing? So there are really three main avenues of concern when we, we talk about this sort of transmission event. And it really comes down to thinking about wildlife, thinking about domestic animals, and thinking about human health. So for wildlife, it's having a huge impact and really hitting some wild bird species quite hard, particularly seabirds, shorebirds, some vultures and raptors. Some of these are endangered species, like the California condor is now showing pretty high levels of influenza the H5N1 infection. And some of these are species that are already facing really large threats from other things like climate change. So this is yet another blow. And then if we talk about domestic poultry, worldwide, the current estimate is that there have been half a billion, billion with a B, it's hard to wrap my head around that number, half a billion poultry that have been infected or depopulated because of H5N1. And that is just a, a staggering number to process and, of course, has a huge economic and food security impact. And then finally, if we think about human health, thankfully, this virus so far has shown very limited uh, capacity to infect people, but it has occurred. There have been some deaths, though it has been quite rare, but that's something that we're watching really closely since a hallmark of influenza is its ability to constantly evolve. And you mentioned the staggering number of half a million poultry and food security. Um, that's really important because poultry is a main food source globally, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's been one of the really large impacts that has 
received a lot of attention, rightfully so. But of course, there's also the large impact that is occurring for wildlife as well right now. Right. And so going to your study, you uh, studied 132 stranded seals and they were tested. Why and what prompted the testing? So our group has actually been doing surveillance on seals for over 10 years now, as well as wild birds. And all told, we've really tested thousands of seals over the past decade or more. In part, this is because there have been outbreaks of influenza in seals going all the way back to the 70s. So we've been trying to understand the role that seals and other wild mammals may play in the bigger picture of disease ecology. And also, in part, because there's been a concern really all along that H5N1, the one that we're currently seeing and discussing, may eventually move into seals from wild birds since they share habitat. Uh, So ongoing testing was already underway, but that really ramped up when we started to see a, a sharp increase in the number of stranded seals, stranded and dying seals along the coast of Maine during June of 2022. And what kind of seals are these? So the seals that tested positive for H5N1 in Maine were primarily harbor seals. And then there were a smaller number of gray seals. And we also looked at harp seals. So those are really the three main species that we have in this region. Uh, None of the harps tested positive, but we did see the H5N1 in, in both the harbor and the gray. Explain a little bit more about why you did the sample testing just in the Northeast. There's a few reasons that we've been doing this ongoing surveillance here for so long. So for one, the Gulf of Maine has been one of the primary regions where influenza has been detected in seals. Instead, going back 50 years now, it's an area where we have seen this sort of thing, not necessarily with die-offs like we saw last year, but we've seen influenza goes into the species in this region. This region is also a place where seals are recolonizing after being hunted to near extinction in the region. In addition to the numbers of seals increasing, waters are warming and migratory patterns of both seals and birds are shifting and multiple species of seal and bird overlap. There's all this very dynamic events that are occurring. So this really is a region that's particularly primed for looking at the movement of virus such as H5N1 in wildlife. Okay, so you've mentioned Maine and up around there, but what other states have you possibly tested in and what were the dates you did this recently? A lot of the surveillance that we've done in seals over the years has been in the Gulf of Maine, so largely Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, but we have tested all the way down along the Atlantic coast. Although it's primarily been in the Northeast, uh, we certainly have samples that come in from uh, from Delaware, from Virginia, from North Carolina. So we have been monitoring to see if the virus is making its way into seals in other regions of the Atlantic beyond just looking at the Gulf of Maine. The, uh, you were asking about the timing of what this particular sampling was. And what's reported in the paper is focusing on January to August of 2022. And those samples you collected farther down the coast, no sign of H5N1 in those? There has not been. So far, it has only been in, even just in Maine. We haven't even detected anything in, in Massachusetts, kind of on the lower end of the Gulf of Maine. So it's been in the, the state of Maine itself. We've picked up the H5N1. Maybe some kind of hope there? I don't know. Um, How are the samples collected? So we partner with NOAA and multiple groups throughout the stranding network. So people who are responding to stranded and deceased seals. They collect a suite of swabs from the animal, sometimes tissue if the animal's being necropsied, or sometimes blood sample when that's possible. And then those are sent to us here at the the Tufts Run Settler Lab. 
And how was the analyzing done? It's actually very similar to what we've all become very familiar with, whether we like it or not, with testing for COVID. So the sample undergoes a, a process where we extract out the genetic material, and then we do a PCR. Uh, so the PCR reaction is looking specifically, at first, just for influenza in general. So if you recall, I mentioned there are all those different forms of influenza that circulate. If we detect that there is influenza, then we do a follow-up uh, PCR to specifically look at whether or not it's H5 influenza. And then, once we find that, we send it along to the USDA's National Veterinary Services Laboratory uh, for confirmational testing. And we also send a sample to our partners at the School of Medicine at Mount Sinai uh, to do genetic sequencing of those samples. So going back to your paper, you talk about outbreaks. When was the first outbreak wave and what was found in the seals? So in addition to doing surveillance with seals that is ongoing, we did start to ramp up the amount of surveillance that we were doing in wild birds as we saw H5N1 you know, land in North America in late 2021. So we've been testing wild birds throughout Maine and Massachusetts, and we first saw the big wave of H5N1 here in our region anyway in the spring of 2022. And that was in a lot of different birds, but mostly it was in raptors and in gulls that we were seeing in, in sort of that first wave. And at that point, there was nothing that was showing up in seals. When was the second wave then and what was found? So after that initial wave, things quieted for a, a short period of time. And then we saw a small spike in H5N1 that was really mostly in turns in the early summer. But the next real wave of a sizable manner came in in the summer. So we really started to see it pick up again in multiple bird species in June, July, and August of 2022. And that's when we had it showing up in lots of different birds. And then we started to detect it in the seals as well during that same time frame of that second wave. And where were these waves found? Was this all in the main area you were talking about? Were they both from the same place? Yeah. So this was all through the Gulf of Maine. So both of these regional waves were in birds that we were detecting H5N1 in these populations throughout the Gulf of Maine. So Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Maine itself. And our focus was primarily in those states in terms of birds, but that is the only area that we were detecting it in seals, although we were testing for seals all the way down the coast. Do we know or suspect what the route of transmission is for all of this? There are some hints, but it's still you know, kind of out there to, to really be determined. So we know from our data by being able to look at the sequences that we're able to pull off of the seals that, and comparing that to the birds in the same regions at the same time frame, we know there were at least two unique transmission events from birds to seals. Now, once it's in seals, once it's in mammals, influenza in mammals is primarily a, a respiratory disease. So it can enter through the nose, the mouth, or the eyes. And this can occur through direct exposure. You know, if you think of how we traditionally think of passing influenza to one another, if you sneeze on somebody or something in your hand, you wipe your eye. So there could be a direct exposure or it could be exposure through contaminated sources. So, you know, feces on the beach or contaminated water that's shed from the birds or sediment in the sand or even the seal coming into contact with, say, a, a bird carcass. I'm trying to sort of wrap my brain around this. So the seal coughs on another seal and they spread it or uh, the bird poops on the landscape and the seal snorts some of it. How, uh, clarify a little here? Yeah, I mean, it, 
It could be any of those, right? So it's, if it's the scenario, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, but if it's a scenario that it's passing between seals, whether it's seals or we're talking about a different mammal, if it's passing between animals, then it can be a situation where they're literally sneezing on each other or breathing it into each other's faces. So that could be happening. But from that transmission event going from a bird to a seal, it could also be a direct interaction that's happening. So it could be, and we see this out in the field, we'll see that a seal will go and roll around on a carcass of a bird. So if that bird is oozing virus, then there is a chance that that is going to get into the seal. There could be what's probably happening in these transmission events just based on other similar situations where we've seen with influenza transmission to seals in the past. There could more likely be an indirect transmission where the virus is being shed from a bird and being shed in its species and it's staying in an infectious form outside of the bird in the feces, whether it's there in a little puddle of water or it's there, you know, on the beach. And then the seal comes through and either rolls around in it inadvertently or, you know, inhales it as it's dragging its body over that, that pile of bird poop. <laughs> so that's, that's another way that it could make its way from a bird to a seal. Well, you mentioned that seals can transmit it to each other. Is that correct? You want to clarify that a little bit? Yeah, this is, it's something that's really just not clear yet. It's still inconclusive. And really, there just simply isn't enough sequence data to make an absolute determination of who exactly is giving it to who and how the virus is moving through the ecosystem. We do know that for other forms of influenza, and so again, we've mentioned there are all these different variants and subtypes of influenza that exist, and there have been cases of influenza and seals in the past. So we do know that it is possible for seals to spread influenza amongst themselves. But for this particular H5N1 variant that is currently circulating and that caused the outbreak in the seals in 2022, there's simply not enough data to say for sure if it is spreading between the seals themselves or if each of those cases was an individual case of going from a bird to a seal. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, you, we've talked about probable or maybe or likely way it spread. Are there r any routes that are not likely to be? <laughs> Possibly. You know, and a lot of this is really still in the grand scheme of things, early days of trying to figure out precisely how it is moving through the ecosystem and between and within species. It is possible that it is possible that each seal is getting infected directly from a sick bird. And that it's going from a bird to a seal, and a bird to a seal, and a bird to a seal. And there are a lot of scattered cases of other wild mammals. We're seeing a lot in fox and coyote and skunk, lots of other mammals. But there's a lot of cases with terrestrial mammals that seem pretty well defined that the H5N1 virus is going from that bird to that mammal through a predator-prey relationship. All right, so a, a fox is eating an infected bird. There are some instances in seals where you can observe that a seal will eat a bird. That happens. But especially when we're talking about harbor seals, they're a smaller seal, and that is not something that you see very often. It's certainly not a, a common occurrence that they eat birds. So the, the probability that they are ingesting a sick bird in a predator-prey relationship is hypothetically possible, but it's pretty unlikely that that's how the transmission is occurring, at least as a full explanation. 
so far in the seals, it's not gone past Maine. Okay, so what are some of the potential bad effects of this virus spreading farther along the coast among more seals? In addition to the impact that it can have directly on the health of the seal population, it could also impact sort of fueling transmission into other wildlife species as well. So if you think about a seal as a large animal, and if that animal is infected with H5N1 that is capable of transmitting to other birds that are scavenging on it or a beach coyote or you know any other animal that comes into contact with that carcass, that provides the opportunity to further this virus through the ecosystem. So there is that the consequences that are there in terms of wildlife. But in addition to that, the more time the H5N1 spends in a mammalian host, the more chance there is for it to, to adapt and become better able to replicate and transmit in mammals. And this can be through a, a steady ongoing evolution of the virus, or it can be through larger changes that can happen if the virus is able to reassort with another form of influenza that is also circulating in wildlife. I'm really interested here how it hasn't spread farther since it's so active in birds all over the place. What's happening with this? Why is it limited to Maine still? And what will cause it to spread farther down the coast? And do you think it'll become seal to seal? Those are all such excellent questions. So why it was only in Maine is still unclear. It's worth clarifying, though, that there were cases that occurred just a little further north in Canada. I don't know that there's official publications that document that yet, but there certainly were cases in gray seals and harbor seals in the North Atlantic in Canada as well. But it didn't go further down the coast. And a few speculations here is that it could have to do with the overlap of species and the interactions that are happening between species. So in the Gulf of Maine, in the summertime, you're going to see more of, particularly coming into the early part of the year, animals are congregating together there, and you've got the pupping season, and then you come into the, the molting season, and then we come into the fall with getting ready for the breeding season. So you've got areas where the seals are going to congregate as they go through sort of these activities throughout the year. And depending on where exactly they are congregating in those denser numbers, if they're also in the same area where there's a species where, let's say, you know, maybe it's an eider, or we saw pretty clear evidence, as, as clear as one can get, of virus that was circulating in the terns, H5N1, going into the field. So if they happen to be on a same, you know, rocky outcropping or beach where there is a bird population that has a high amount of virus at that same time, then that might be kind of the, the perfect storm that's creating the opportunity for it to, to spill over in that region as opposed to a very similar region a little further down the beach, a little, a little further down the coast, but maybe doesn't have that same exact dynamic. Okay, given that, how great a concern is this flu virus? I mean, obviously, half a billion poultry is pretty terrible. Will it die out naturally, or is the prognosis really pretty dire? So I think it's likely here to stay in at least some capacity. So it, it's so widespread around the globe at this point, uh, even in regions where we previously haven't seen high path influenza or H5N1 viruses similar to this go, such as South America, 
It's in so many different species. It's at a pretty high prevalence. I think it's here to stay. But I do expect that the severity will decrease over time. And in fact, we've already started to see that there are some signs of species that are recovering from H5N1. There's recent reports out of gannets that have seemed to recover or are showing signs of being able to recover from H5N1. And then there's some asymptomatic species, such as ducks, seem to get it and not necessarily have this the high level of mortality that you see in other species. So I think we'll kind of get to a point where it's less severe in wildlife. But how long that's going to take and what that's going to look like is still to be seen. Okay, well, barring natural um, immunity eventually, can this spread be stopped or at least managed in wildlife in any other way? Uh, yeah, so unfortunately, there's really not a whole lot that can be done at this point in terms of stopping the spread of this particular outbreak in wildlife. Again, given that it's such a large and broad scale of impacted species really around the globe. But primary ways we can try to mitigate is really by being extra diligent with biosecurity, really limiting interactions between wildlife and domestic animals, wildlife and us, and doing the best we can to limit the additional stressors that we impose on wildlife. So the ways that our actions impact where and how different species interact with each other and the other things that are impacting the health of those species, those are all kind of bigger picture things that can help to try to curb the spread of these sorts of illnesses. Maybe this is sort of the same question, but do you have any specific action steps that can be taken in mind? Yes. I mean, really, biosecurity is is the incredibly important component here. Making sure that we limit the ways virus can spread between and, and within species through really robust biosecurity practices. For example, it's critical that, that wild birds are kept separate from domestic birds um, and other domestic animals. And this comes up even, you know, even if you don't have a backyard poultry farm, but you have a dog that you walk along on the beach or you know, on trails where there might be a, a bird carcass that was infected with H5N1. So really trying to limit those sorts of opportunities for that transmission link to occur between wildlife and domestic. And then really on a broader level, there, there are some really big picture ways that we've contributed to these sorts of emerging diseases. And it comes down to things like our centralization of agriculture, massive farms, crowding of animals, the way the breeding movement and processing of animals is structured. Like All of these factors contribute to the ways that virus is able to spread. So if we truly want to impact these sorts of viruses, you know, maybe not H5N1 that's currently causing the outbreak, but the next one on the horizon, if we truly want to try to impact these things, we really need to take a serious look at our things like how we do our food production and think about trying to recalibrate those a little bit. So you've been monitoring all of this for a lot of years now. What's the use of monitoring if we're just sort of observing and there's no real way to step in? Right. If there's not much we can do, then, then why, why pay attention to it? And, and that's a great question. And it, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that it's critical for us to understand how the virus is adapting and evolving. So we can efficiently prepare ourselves with best candidate vaccines and treatments so that we don't have a scenario like COVID where we're really caught off guard with something new just suddenly landing on our doorsteps. That's one of the reasons it's important to, to pay close attention but also so that we can understand the factors that impact how virus is moving through the ecosystem and the places that 
we as our species, the places where we might be inadvertently contributing to the ability of virus to evolve and move. Like some of the things I was mentioning about our food production practices, there are things that we can hopefully learn about the ways we can make better or worse (laughs) the, the spread of these sorts of things. And you mentioned people being protected. Where do people fit into all of this at this point? Can someone get this from seals or wild birds or any other animals? So far, there has been very little human infection, thankfully. There's been no evidence of human-to-human transmission or any other mammal-to-human transmission. Cases have occurred that have been traced to poultry. So there, there have been some infections that have happened in people but it's all been traced so far to having a direct interaction with infected poultry. We do know, though, that it it can infect people, and we know that it's continuously undergoing adaptations, so it's important that we continue to be vigilant, even though it's currently considered to be low risk for human health. And you mentioned pandemic. First of all, isn't there a vaccine for H5N1 for people now? Yeah, kind of. So and we have a, we have a flu vaccine. But it is very specifically tailored to whatever is circulating for for seasonal flu. And just to kind of go back a little bit to sort of the really big picture when we're talking about all those different forms of influenza, the ones that circulate in people are referred to as H1N1 and H3N2. Those are the human seasonal forms. So H5N1 isn't one that our immune systems have regularly seen. So that's not what our vaccine is currently directed against. But with that said, this is what I was mentioning about the importance of monitoring what's happening. We know that this is out there and we know that this is a concern. So the the CDC actually maintains a a seed stock of candidate vaccine viruses. So it's not enough certainly to, you know, vaccinate the world or even the U.S., but it is a, a seed stock from which, in theory, we should be able to rapidly scale up if we get to the point where it seems like that need is arising. You indicated that you thought this might eventually die out instead of getting much worse, but could this be our next pandemic? We can't say for sure, but this is one that has been on the radar as a virus of concern long before COVID came along. The reason is in large part because even though the number of people that have been infected has been relatively low, fatality has been high. So if you take all of H5N1 infections in people going back 20 years since this first started to emerge and kind of its earlier forms of the virus that we're currently seeing. Take all 20 years, there's been just shy of 900 cases around the entire globe of H5N1 infection in people. But the fatality in those has been just over 50%. So that's why it has been something that has been paid very close attention to. At this point, though, it's not transmitting between people. Infections are rare. And we do at least know what we would need to do to get a vaccine in place. The hope is that the prognosis would be good if it were to <laughs> if it were to start to crop up into people more than what we're seeing right now. Last year in my very small garden, I live in the southeast, it was like an aviary. I had so many birds, at least six cardinal families and lots and lots of other birds, different varieties. This year, I have one cardinal couple and almost no other birds. Every few days, I might see a single other bird. 
is this a coincidence or are songbirds being that noticeably depopulated or is it just some weird random thing? It brings up a really interesting point that for whatever reason that it's, it's not incredibly clear why there's this distinction, but songbirds, generally speaking, whether we're talking about H5N1 or other forms of influenza, songbirds really do not end up having much for influenza. And that's been the case with this outbreak as well. H5N1, it is being picked up in, in the occasional songbird here and there, but it, it hasn't been really impacting them uh, very much at all. With the one exception, actually, of crows. And I will fess up here that I did not realize until this outbreak that a crow is considered a songbird, <laughs> but it is. And crows have been impacted quite a bit by H5N1. So, but with all that said, there are plenty of other things globally that are impacting songbird populations. Um, you know, really heavy impacts from climate change and other things outside of viral infections. At least right now, H5N1 doesn't seem to be on the long list of things that are causing problems for songbirds. Well, whatever's causing it, I find it very depressing. Um, tell us about where you work and your job and your main area of interest. Uh, yeah, so I'm a scientist at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at the University. And I'm interested broadly in viruses, ends up focusing primarily my interest in viruses and wildlife. And I'm really interested in understanding kind of all of the stuff that we've been talking about and understanding how interactions between and within species, especially in the context of environmental stressors and climate change, impact the overall transmission and evolution of virus. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Perrier. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the April 2023 article, Highly Pathogenic Avian Influenza A, H5N1, Virus Outbreak in New England Seals, United States, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.